Grosso from Vancouver to win it for Canada! Canada came! Canada conquered! Canada gold! Buchanan with the cross in towards Alfonso Davies! Canada's history-making moment delivered by their biggest superstar! A goal the country has been dreaming about for decades! Finally arrives! You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo. Alexander Gongay-Rujic and your host, Ben Steiner. Welcome back into the Northern Football Podcast. It's episode 127 of NFP. Ben Steiner alongside here, Glendo and Alex Gongay-Rujic. As usual, make sure to subscribe and rate on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. But a not-so-fun podcast today, Canada not winning the CONCACAF Nations League. Oh, how joyous this could have been should Canada have won the Nations League. But instead, it's a tuna loss to the U.S. men's national team. And just your first reactions on that match. Look, there's a lot to, I think, unpack just from the overall game to John's post-match comments, which I'm sure we're going to get into. The discourse was fascinating to look at last night, let me tell you. There were a lot of themes that I think emerged from that game. And there are going to be a lot of us touching on all of them, I think, eventually, because we got a lot of questions, many wide-ranging, many of which are going to touch on these subjects. But I really have three major takeaways. The first one, and I don't think this can be ignored whatsoever. The U.S., at least in the first half, and by which point they were comfortable, they were 2-0 up, they probably weren't, at least in their minds, under threat of losing the game or even having the game go to extra time. They were magnificent in the first half. Everything they did, snuffing out the Canadians' direct passes in behind the fullbacks, Scally and Robinson were sitting low, snuffing out the space to give Lorea and Davies pretty well. The few times that one of those guys would get free, there was an American player there to intervene. But then when the ball did manage to get through and find the foot or the head or whatever body part it was of a Canadian player, the finish wasn't there. And it goes back to the conversation during the World Cup. It's that between the boxes, they did a very good job, couldn't get it done in either box. And you saw the exact same thing happen in this final, in that they just couldn't get the necessary finishing. Yes, it was 2-0. Would a goal from Canada have changed the game? Goals tend to change games, especially tactically. You wonder if maybe things would have gotten pretty interesting in those final 20-25 minutes if that Laren double chance ended up going his way, but alas, it did not. So that's one thing that I'd take away and think, even when you're able to get yourself back into the game in a way, you just couldn't get that decisive moment once again on the big stage. And then third, um, big picture wise, there's a lot to ask right now, um, which we're going to get into. And, you know, John's comments after the game sort of touched on some of those topics and that does the team need more prep time? Do they need more games against tier one opponents? Do they need more exposure as a team at that level? The answer is yes. But there are also other fascinating questions going forward into these games that I think are are worth watching. And that's why this Gold Cup roster, which I think we're going to discuss ad nauseum as well, is also so interesting. Because there's a chance that a few players could really make a name for themselves and put themselves in that conversation come September, October, November, and then towards the Copa America cycle, if they happen to qualify. Yeah, look, there's a lot to unpack from that. And that's why we're here. Hopefully, yes. hopefully uh, you all sit back and this can be as much... Uh, cathartic experience as it is a soothing one as it is just a frustrating venting uh, experience I think you'll click all of those those boxes and I think ultimately there's two things that you can take away I think on one hand 
it's very it's frustrating like, i think you, you, leave, you leave with that it's frustrating like canada was in a final they lost they lost quite like two nil just doesn't feel like like that feels like it almost doesn't do it justice and that just felt like it just felt like canada was never on the same field as the u.s in that final and that's frustrating because look it's a huge game it, and that was one that just surprised me because one thing we've seen from this Canada team is that look, like it's a it's a final and you're playing a very good team. Like let's not get that out of the way. This US team yeah. can and if they want to be can be a problem. I mean, it feels like the only thing that's going to hold them back is themselves at this stage. Literally, that's it. Yeah. Like this is a good US team, but look, in a final, you can't control that. You can't control your opponent. You can't what you, what you can control is how you go out there, how you start, how you adjust you know just how you match the other team's intensity level and for the most part Canada's not had those issues over the last few years and it was just such a surprising performance in that regard because it felt like Canada were I don't want to say weren't ready for the game but it felt like they were like we know they did something where look they still know what this U.S. team is and you know short preparation camp or not this is a group that knows each other and you should know what to expect in a game like this and it just feels like they didn't that was surprising because it felt like a this felt like a game that you'd get in September 2018 under John Herdman, not a game that you get in June 2023. But on the flip side, what's nice is that Canada's playing in these sorts of games, right? You're playing in a freaking final. Like you're, you know, they had a chance to win silverware. There is something where the sun has risen. Mexico sacked another coach. You can sit there like, you know what? Canada's still probably right now the second best team in the region. And imagine saying that three to four years ago. Even two years ago. Even two years ago. <laughs> Canada's still got a core of players that are young, that are moldable, that are yeah. that are that can hit the next level. It's just now I think a, a game like this showed, okay, Canada's gotten to this stage where look, they can be a team that pushes and finishes second in CONCACAF and makes World Cups. But given the fact that they have some like players like an Alfonso Davies, is that the, a fair ceiling for this team? Absolutely not. And I think that's why the d- discussion gets fascinating because now you have to look at, okay, then what's the next steps that they have to take to make sure that they're maximizing that potential. And a final loss, as painful as it is, exposes some of those key realities. Because, of course, if you win, you can feel that maybe you've taken more of a step than you have. Whereas now it's clear. Like, it's clear where that gap is. I think now between that's three World Cup games, that's this game. Heck, you could even use the Uruguay game. Uh, as well that's five tier one tests where you've gone out and you've lost each one of them and now the line is very clear on what's holding you back what needs to change and I think that's both frustrating like we mentioned but also I guess exciting given how young this team still is and you know there's still room for growth and uh, we'll we'll see what avenues are needed to to be taken to to get there. I thought Canada it's been a while since they were just completely played off the pitch like that like that was worse than some of the World Cup games. Like, I mean, you can look at Croatia, but they they went out to get a draw in that game against Croatia. There were some tactical mistakes in that game. There were tactical mistakes in the Nations League final as well. But yesterday, it just seemed like everything was wrong. The players didn't seem to have the effort there. Uh, there didn't seem to be the desire to lift a trophy. There's been everything talked about wanting to to lift a trophy, send a team off in the right way, et cetera, et cetera. But when it actually came to it, that intensity wasn't there from the national team players. And yeah. I, I think that's that's almost an issue in its own right, because yeah, whatever players you bring in, that's an issue with the mentality of the group. Like 
whether it's Alfonso Davies doing too much, playing in a role that isn't defined. And I think that definitely has to be something that gets cleared up in the future. We were asking this question after the World Cup. We were asking it at Nations League in March what his role is on the team. But is there something with the mentality of the group that just can't rise up to the occasion of a final yet, whether it's an experience in a final? I mean, you can't really say that because they do it with their clubs all the time. But it's, it's different when you're in that setting together and you've only had a couple of days to, to, to prepare. Like, that, that does have an impact. Again, like, what's so shocking about this game is that it was also minute one to minute 90. Because there's been occasions, like, you could even look at the famed Haiti debacle all the way back when. Canada had a great first half. The Tremendous first half. Just, like, kind of fell off the rails and they couldn't adjust. Right around, was, like, minute 52 when they conceded that first half. And that was just yeah. a bundle of individual errors. Like, yeah. it wasn't something where you're looking like, oh, they got yeah, they were all played. No, it that, wasn't that. that and, really. like, that, that's, you know, even at the World Cup, if you're going to use these examples, Canada was in the fight. Like, you use the Croatia game, for example. They start great. Mm-hmm. It's just inexperience mm-hmm. injury everything caught up to them mm-hmm. and by that point it was game over it was full, like three four one and that's just what happens and i think the biggest thing about this u.s game is look as we meant u.s canada played awful like we, we can you don't have to sugarcoat you can put it out there it, it's almost more frustrating because they were in the game until the very end so the fact that if they made a tweak if they got themselves back in the fight they could have still made a game of this at one nil they even mm-hmm. still could have made a game of this at 2-0. And they say, but there's 15, done it before. There's 15 minutes left in that first half. If you mm-hmm. find a way to, if it means a sub, if it means a, a tactical injury break where you go and just literally, you know tactics, you just rip into your players and be like, look, it's a final. Like, you know, get get your collective, you know? But it just felt like it, it, that was the biggest surprise. Is this, that it wasn't there and just like, it felt like nothing was there to change it. Because look, it happens. It's a final. That's why I want to like, you know, it's important to note that, right? Like the occasion is big. It can get to you, but at the end of the day, especially like if it's not working, like you have to do something. I think that was the biggest thing that Canada, you know, from John Herdman and a lack of adjustments and from the players on the pitch as well. Cause I think, you know, it all, there's all responsibility to be taken. Like it just felt like no one was willing to be like, look, we are, you know, shitting the bed or say something along those lines and adjusting it. It just kind of felt like they're okay. This is what's happening. We're going to accept it. And, just in a final, like you can't do that. Like you can almost do that in a game like CONCACAF where you're like, oh God, we're under the cosh. Let's, you know, and then all of a sudden you can get that switch. But especially against a team of US's quality, you're in a final, you can't do that. You lost the game as soon as you, you do that. And again, that's where it kind of leads to that point where it felt like Canada lost that in minute 10 or 20. They didn't lose that. And, you know, you could look at Laren missing chance in 60 or 70. No, they lost in minute 10 or 20. Like in a final, that's just, that's, that's you can't do that. But getting into your questions, and it could have been a record number of questions asked on this podcast as well. Certainly some unhappy Canadian soccer supporters. And we'll get into the first question from Vince Alvarado. Not really a question, but I just want to say it's nice to suffer a finals defeat instead of a 93rd minute win at Martinique in a Gold Cup group stage match. Sure, it's nicer, but it also stings a little bit more, I would say. It does, but you know what? We've we've all waited years to experience this sort of a... A feeling as terrible as it might feel now especially the day afterward it, it's marinated like it, it definitely beats talking about you know goalless runs that last seven eight games and wondering oh when are they going to score the next goal let alone win a game right so at least they're they're making progress and it goes back to what alex said and that the expectations are raised now right we've gone from being 
pessimistic after losing 1-0 to Martinique in the 2013 Gold Cup final opener to talking about a loss in a final to our fierce rivals after what's been a transformative two years. So there are worse things to talk about. So it is nice to have that perspective sometimes. And I'll honestly just disagree, Ben, just in the sense that, look, it is way funner to talk about what Alfonso Davies' is best position than versus which unattached FC player should start at left and right back for a game. I'm just going to say that much. At the end of the day, there's a lot of the Canadian players that come away with a silver medal, and it's not what they were looking for. But at points during Atiba Hutchinson's career, which of course came to a close on Sunday, would he have ever thought that he would get a piece of hardware with the Canadian men's national team in a CONCACAF tournament? I don't think so. So at the end of the day, I do think it's better to lose a final than to to, to lose a, a match against Martinique in the Gold Cup group stage. But getting into your actual questions from Mark Behensky, did we forget how good the Americans are during World Cup qualifying. They had some underwhelming squads, but almost every player is in a top five league at this point. Yeah, this U.S. team is very good. I think, again, that can't be completely ignored in this whole discussion. Of course, we're focusing on Canada. A lot of the listeners and whatnot are going to focus on Canada and what's going on with Canada and how Canada can take that next step. But this U.S. you know team on the men's side is hitting a very interesting spot. Like, not only do they have all these players in top five leagues, like really other than Tim Ream and John Brooks, like so many of them are 25 or under, like Gio Reyna's pretty much the best player on the pitch yesterday. He's 21 or 22 now, still super young. Joe Scally is a great game. He's 20, couldn't even legally drink in the celebrations after. Like the U.S. is a very good team. And I think it is important to remember that. And it'll be interesting to see how they develop because it's something where it feels like if they can click, especially now that they have a, a guy like Balogun, it feels like they have all the boxes you need to be, right? Like they got the top fullbacks, they got good center backs, they've got solid midfielders, they now have attackers. Matt Turner does the job in goal. Like for them, really, it feels like they have a very high ceiling. You know, I'm fascinated to see where it goes. And uh, I think for Canada, the fact that they got to see what the U.S. were able to do is this U.S. team is going to be doing a lot of that going forward. And it just shows, uh, you know, what the what what CONCACAF is going to look like for, for the next while, what Canada is going to have to rise to because this U.S. team uh, is going to go places. And from El Canaco, after Canada goes down a goal in big matches, why do they absolutely fold like a dress shirt in a packed suitcase? So I did actually look up the numbers for this. Um, Three wins, three draws, nine losses now when conceding the first goal. But each one of those wins and draws that they were able to recover only came when they just conceded the first goal. They were either able to make it 1-1 or they pulled ahead and kept it to one goal in each of those scenarios. Otherwise, losses like, for example, Uruguay, um, that's one where they conceded twice, couldn't come back, get anything. Yeah, I think what we've seen is that also... Canada struggles to play low blocks. And I think as soon as that two-goal difference comes in, teams are more comfortable yeah, sitting back. Because, of course, when you sit back with a one-goal lead, it's, it's a risk. Because, yep. you know, you, that one goal, all of a sudden, you get the momentum. Whereas if you sit back and you allow one, you're just like, okay, we have that cushion yeah. to, to, to play off of. And I think it, it shows some of the issues that Canada will have to sort out in possession is that if teams sit back, if they frustrate the... You know, there's a lack of finishing, there's a lack of execution, things get a bit individualistic at times, and I think all of those just kind of tend to rear their ugly, ugly heads even more when Canada goes down two goals in particular in some of these big games. 
And I guess even one goal in some cases, like it was against Belgium, where they were very much in that game, but it just it felt like the way they were playing for as good as it was, it just felt like they could have played 180 minutes and not scored against Belgium. And there's just been too many games like that when they're playing low blocks. They're not finding those sorts of moments that you need to break those down. I think it, what's important to contextualize the results that they have when conceding the goal first is a lot of their games over that run have not come against major of opponents. Um, some certainly have, but I do think that Canada, when they go down, there's a bit of a sense of, oh, we can't come back. We, we, we don't have the ability to fight back against a little bit of adversity. Sure, they, they've fought back before, but it just seems like they're at a bit of a loss when they're not playing that attacking catalyst that we see so much against a lot of the sort of regular CONCACAF nations, not the big three. Um, and then when they get up to the, the top stage, if they're up for it, they're up for it. They played fantastically against Belgium. They played fairly well against Morocco as well. But the issues are just, they're not up for it all the time. And when they go down, it seems like they've got almost a bit of imposter syndrome in a way, being the team that they are. Yeah. And again, it kind of leads to that identity as well, where that's also steps are going to take. Like they're a team that, we know what Canada is good at. It's, uh, their best games have come sitting a little behind the ball and getting their wide players forward and you know getting their striker in, in some of those moments. And just the reality is we haven't seen enough of them in other moments where maybe you know teams are inviting them to play and break them down and carry the initiative. And that's where we've seen a lack of finishing or a lack of final ball, this and that. And, like, it's something that's been there for a while, because I sit here remembering some of these earlier CONCACAF games where you're sitting there like, Canada was just missing the final ball. Like, this is this has been a theme for, for a while now, and it is something where they're going to have to look. Like, is that personnel? Is it, uh, is it tactics? Is it just overall approach? Because I think more and more teams, right? Like, Canada's going to be starting to – teams are going to start to take Canada serious, and what does that mean when you get taken serious? You're going to be asked to – Play, you know, your your strengths are going to be limited. And now I think the secret's been out that if you sit behind Canada, you can frustrate them. So now the onus is going to be on them to be like, look, every team you're playing now, unless you figure it out, is going to sit behind the ball. So how do you break that? How do you fix that? And um, you know, that that's going to be the next challenge for them tactically. And from BTC time, does anyone at Northern Football Podcast really believe that the Canamente players left it all on the field? And why wasn't Herdman more honest in his post-match presser? I mean, the disconnect between KJ's view of the match, his also, and John Herdman's are a bit spectacular, are they not? I do have to commend Christian Jack for going all in on the Canadian team and just the effort that they put in. Very similar to what what Alex has been saying there is if you're going to be at the, the big kids table in a way, you have to take that and, and rise to the occasion. Um, I don't think they left it all on the field. Um, and I was honestly a little bit shocked that Herdman said what he said after the game, both in the presser and in the immediate reaction where he was saying Canada was so close. Canada was played well, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe a bit of a failure to actually see what was a poor performance from the Canadian men's national team. To his defense slightly here, some of the points he brought up in terms of what they were able to do well specifically, and he mentioned how they trained for some of this, they actually did do it in certain chunks of the game in terms of 
getting the ball past that line of engagement. The U.S. front three is always very active and quick to to close down players, right? And and it's usually very difficult to bypass it. And there were times when they were able to do it with relative fluidity. Not all the time, but sometimes. So in in that way, they were able to do it because Mexico couldn't do it. A lot of teams have struggled against it. There were times when they were able to get the ball quickly in behind the fullbacks whenever they would actually, on occasion, push up. They just couldn't get the execution right. So in that degree, he was correct. Um, but I'm not surprised at all about the comments that he made when it came to, and I'm sure we're going to get into the comments, but the, the bigger picture stuff, because this is now back-to-back windows where he's pleaded with the Federation to give him more of what he wants in terms of those elite friendlies, getting more prep time, longer camps, just in general, more investment into the team. And so the fact that it was on that stage in a final with the American media present I don't think it can come as much of a surprise that he would use that platform, uh, especially in that moment. That's fair, because, I mean, obviously, as a coach, you want to have the best resources to yeah. prepare. And you want to have training time. It's valuable. But I do. I, I would agree, though, that the, the, you know, leave it all on the field did feel like a bit much. Because, I mean, I get it. You're not going to want to throw your players completely under the bus. It is a final. Not in public, it, it, it would be disingenuous yeah. to be to say they didn't play, try hard or didn't want to win the trophy. Like, that would just be straight up. But I think you also, as a coach, you can be realistic in the sense that the U.S. wanted it more. You didn't match the energy levels of the U.S. And I think, again, that's why I'm surprised where, uh, you know, Herdman didn't go that angle and where, you know, Christian Jack was spot on with his post-game comments. It's just that, like, look, if Canada, you know, wants to play in these sorts of games, you just simply you can't get outworked. That's a, it's, it's such a fundamental thing, you, but you can't get outworked by any team, especially when there's a talent gap. Because, look, you can get outworked by Aruba if you're playing Aruba. But, you know, Canada's going to have qualitative advantages that will allow them that getting outworked by Aruba won't end too poorly for them. But when you're playing in a final against the U.S., you just you can't get outworked. And I think it was just surprising for, for Herman, who's usually pretty, you know, candid about what he sees in terms of his performances, that, okay, you can't at least see and, and, and be like, okay, Canada was second best on a lot of 50-50s today. The touch was poor. They were just not in it in set pieces. They were, you know, I, I just feel like for, for from Canada's perspective, there wasn't enough inflection in that regard in terms of what let them down. And I think that's important because, look, like it's something where, yeah, the U.S. is a great team and you can praise their, that. But, look, this is a Canadian team that has gone out and beaten this U.S. side before. So it's clearly there. So in that case, any time where you're not reaching that level required to beat the U.S., you, you should look in turn and be like, look, we weren't good enough. We weren't winning our 50-50s. You, you, you know, you're not – you're losing a lot of key dog moments if we're going to go back to, to, to that – uh, terminology and I think for for candidate a hundred percent you know I, I I'm surprised that Herman wasn't leaning into that more because I think that sort of stuff can also fire up the players if you're saying that like, like okay our coach feels like we didn't you know we didn't want it enough like go oh, all right go out and and I want it. And from Androx side, Herdman said post game we get into those high xG areas but we're not killer enough. Do you agree? To me, the final balls and attacking third possession were more a problem than the shot selection, especially in the first half. I think. Another part of the issue was Canada was just not shooting. They were being too dinky with the ball in the box and not necessarily taking a shot where when you're 2-0 down, fire the ball on goal and hope for the best. I think Richie Lurea did it at a couple points. Um, But yeah, you just have to take 
more chances and it seemed like Canada was very risk averse at a time where they had to be taking risks to get back into the game. And I feel like it was twofold because it felt like when Canada got the ball in these dangerous areas, they weren't being killer enough, but also they weren't like making enough of those killer options. Like I look at David and Laren, for example, up front, like they weren't making enough of those killer runs. And it's something where maybe if you're not getting service as a striker, like drop deep, get on the ball, take a shot and just want it a bit more in that regard. It felt like it was too much standing around and looking like, oh, the perfect ball is going to follow me in the box and I'm going to finish and we're all, all of a sudden going to be right on track. And I think, yeah, that, that, that was something where you, you mentioned it being a bit too cute, a bit, you know, just looking for that perfect play. Sometimes in the box, you just have to go out there and put your boot through it and it deflects off someone's hip and goes in. But, hey, you got a goal, you got the confidence, you got the energy, and there's just too many moments where you're trying to go to the cut, the, the touchline, you're trying to get a step over, step over, get a flick across the box, you get another second touch and you shoot it and, uh, you know, look, it's a, it's a final. I mean, heck, look at the, the U.S. goal that Balogun scored, for example. It was Reina take ball, Reina play ball, Balogun shoot. Like, it wasn't anything, you know, they didn't reinvent the wheel with that sort of attacking sequence and it just felt like there's way too many times in, Canada, in the box or Canada. It's like, okay, let's get the, the touch and the second touch and the, no, just put your, your, your boot through it. And I think that's something where, uh, that's hundred percent something that the players will have to look at because it's now a few times in these big games where it's like, yeah, okay, against Curacao and Honduras, some of those plays are coming off and you're getting some of these one touch finishes and you know some of these plays that you want. But when you're playing these big teams, you, you know you're gonna have to turn these half chances into full chances and these nothing chances into half chances and uh, there's just too much looking for for the perfect uh, sequence. And from Antonius, why can't Canada score against top teams? First notice this against Uruguay. Created chances but cannot finish. Is it tactics, experience, talent? I honestly think it's a mix of everything. Canada needs to be playing more of these Tier 1 friendlies. And I know that's a, a Herdmanism, but top opponents and more experiences in these type of environments where you're taking on those different aspects. Talent? Well, you have to match up against the best and test your talent experience well you're going to get experience from playing these games tactics try things out in friendlies against those top talents to figure out where you can go with it and then when it comes to experience in a final i mean you have a great opportunity coming up with the gold cup and i mean you do have a few of the players that will be critical moving forward um i think of a guy i mean stefan Estacchio is already critical to this team but i think of a guy like moise bombito who could definitely grow into a critical role on the Canadian men's national team. So you need these players to be getting this experience in this environment, wearing that Maple Leaf on their on their crest. But at the end of the day, I think Herdman's right. It comes down to, to funding, to fund these experiences, the ability to test yourself against these big talents. Well, now we have to see where they go from it now too. Because I think now there's, like we mentioned, there's been five games of experience. And that's a pretty good darn sample size. Like that's 400 and... Uh, 50 minutes worth of, of data plus more with all the added time that you can sometimes get. It's almost 500 minutes of qualitative data that you can dive into from playing these teams over the last, you know, 12 months. Uh, you know, these teams being Uruguay, U.S. in a final, the three World Cup games. Heck, you can even throw Japan there for more of a sample size and look at some of the things that worked for Canada in a, in a game against a, a, a top team and just take it and learn from it. And I think we haven't seen that, but maybe this moment will be what they need to sit back and look like, okay, what was legitimately holding us back in these World Cup games? 
in the in this final like is it as much uh, profiles is it tactics is it you know just nerves is it weathering the storm the answer is probably all of them but i think there's gonna have to be questions asked now okay you have all this data to look at okay where were those shortcomings you know what are some things that that you know let you down i think for example one is where we're about to go into it in all those games we mentioned you know guys like jonathan david and kyle Leonard who scored for fun in Concacaf. they have what like a goal between them in those games zero goals between them in those games you know guys like Al- alfonso davies who stepped up in a lot of big moments there's been a lot of you know discourse of okay is he playing at his best okay those are things that, that will have to be looked at and then from there it's okay where do the supporting pieces fit in that, that picture and now that you have the, have had this experience, I think the the big thing is experience is useless if you don't learn from it. At the end of the day, you know you you can go out and lose ten nil ten times, but if you're not actually learning and making sure that over time ten nil becomes nine, nine becomes eight, and then by the end of the tenth game you're winning, that you know that's going to be the the difference. And now that Canada's built up these experiences, the next step has to be how do they respond, and that takes more tests to show their learnings and to experiment with learnings to, to etc but yeah now i think they, they certainly haven't they're not lacking for for moments where they can look back okay we did this wrong we did this wrong okay now how do they fix that and from beaver ball is in canada's last four biggest games the world cup and the nation's league final david has been underwhelming are you concerned that david can be the nine that canada needs in big moments he didn't deliver in the final like balagun did if you're looking at just league on strikers finding success in big matches in Concacaf. Yeah, that's a great question, and it's going to be interesting to see what to kind of, you know, make of Jonathan David's performances in these big moments. I think, again, it's, it, for a striker, it always, especially a striker, because, you know, as a striker, you can only have so much control on what goes on around you, so to say. Not saying, like, strikers are completely powerless and depend on everyone else, but you can also only be dictated so much by your environment. And I feel like the, the two things are true. I think if you look at it, has Jonathan David done enough in these big games? No, I don't think he's hit his full level. He hasn't been Jonathan David. You can use that Belgium game as an example. You can use several other chances he's gotten since. Um, but also, is our, you know is Canada doing enough to get the most out of him in those big moments? And I think the answer is also um, no. So I think it's something where, look, as a striker, sometimes when things aren't going your way, you have to find a way to just you know, metaphorically pull those socks up and, and, and get after it. And David will maybe have to, to show a bit more of that in those big games. But also, uh, you know, it just feels like tactically in these big games, Tanda hasn't been able to play a way that suits David a bit more. And hey, maybe that's also as much on tactics. Like, for example, a question to be asked is, does the pair of David and Laren just not work in big games? And it could legitimately be a question because they've shown that in CONCACAF they can do a job in certain environments together, but it's like when you're talking about breaking down low blocks and Canada's issues there, it's almost like, okay, if someone like a Kyle Aaron was sacrificed for a, a, a different midfielder or an extra wide player, this and that, or you're playing a 4-3-3 with just David up top, could that be getting more out of David? Potentially. So there, it is twofold in the sense that David does need to, to step up in one of these games and just have a signature moment really show because he's had them for a little. So you can't sit there and say, okay, he's not a big game player, like and not title run. He was scoring big goals against PSGs and 
you know, in title clinching games and he scored in Champions League games for Lille as well. But for, for Canada now, it's okay. Can you step up and do that? But also for Canada, they're going to have to look and be in the big games. Are we doing enough to, to get Jonathan David that service he requires to, to give him the best platform? Because it's not 100% on one side or the other, as, as boring as an answer that might be. And from Canem and T fan from BC, prior to his injury, do you think the original plan would have been to play Cornelius in the middle of that back three as opposed to Kennedy? I think the switch to Kennedy on paper was a good one to add a bit more pace there, but I'm just not sure it worked, and clearly it didn't. Yeah, I think it was Cornelius' job to lose, given that he was playing in the middle of a back three. Well, he is playing in the middle of a back three for Malma, and he had a chance to, to get a taste of that role last camp. And yeah, I think it's something where it, it did hurt not having him on, especially you could see in the air, because Cornelius is someone, um, and he's grown a lot in that regard, where he's always been good in the air, but he's become more of a leader back there in terms of organizing, and it just felt, there's you, we talk so much about Canada's struggles on set pieces, and a big part of that is just felt like there was no communication or presence back there. It was just too much like hoping that someone would win their individual duel. And when you're defending set pieces, you can't. It has to be a cohesion. It has to be a unit. And I feel like a guy like Cornelius has shown that he can potentially be someone, be that guy when Vittoria is not on the field because uh, Vittoria has obviously been that guy for Canada for, for a while now. So Cornelius was 100% missed and uh, someone that, if we're talking about Vittoria replacements long-term, he's certainly the the one that's a lot more, that leads that race uh, along with a few other profiles. And from Jordan SC, do you think Herdman outsmarted himself by starting Kennedy and Larea? It looked like he had no confidence in the, in the middle of his back line. As well, was the moment you saw Kava come in the nail in the coffin. On that second point, it did seem like a bit of a Hail Mary. Look, for the Kava one, like, yeah, it's a bit out of nowhere. But honestly, like, as wild as it is, I didn't hate it. Like, it's a game where you're just struggling to get in the fight and match the U.S.'s intensity and the and effort. There's one thing you can't fault Cavallini for doing is that he goes full tilt. And maybe sometimes he goes full tilt to the, you know, detriment of his team. But he goes full tilt. So, honestly, I didn't hate that Canada did that because it felt like they just needed some sort of uh, – energy although yes it did feel like a bit of a a, a last ditch action so to speak and how disappointing was it that atiba hutchinson never got onto the pitch why wasn't Tony subbed off at some point the hutchinson one's a great question just because at that point it felt like there was nothing to lose by putting him on certainly maybe he could have brought a bit of a calm head uh, especially in possession helped ustakio and Kone move up the field because you know stackio and Kone kept drop dropping the back three and you know, you're just losing what they can bring in the middle of the park when they were doing that, like, on every possession. Um, so, yeah, I was, it was surprising for Hatch, especially because it's his last game, right? Like, it's it's a chance for him to, to go out. And it, it felt like he genuinely also could have uh, helped tweak the tactics a bit. So I was surprised about the, the lack of Hutchinson and would have loved to see him go. And it's just, you just feel bad that it's circumstance. But, you know, legend at Besiktas, legend for Canada. He doesn't get to see the field in the final game for... For either of them, uh, you know, you, you feel for a team and you do wonder what he could have brought, especially even if it was at, at halftime. If maybe, you, for example, you don't think Vittoria is good to go, as you know, wouldn't have helped the set piece problem. But you've seen Hutchinson in a back three before to help you in possession. Okay, you're struggling to play against the U.S. Could Hutchinson have stepped in either to that back three or to that base of that midfield to free up a Kone, to free up an Estacchio? What ifs, but something to think of.
And from Mark, and what needs to happen to be able to build our team chemistry and composure, especially among our star players when we face different competition? And I think that was a big part of the issue last night was some of the star players maybe seemed to do a little bit too much. And I think it wasn't just an Alfonso Davies thing, and we'll, we'll get to that. I mean, he had his issues playing somewhat down the left side and not really controlling the touch with it was a bit heavy. But at this point, Canada is filled with star players for the most part. Like, they're, it's hard to really look at a position and say that there's not necessarily a star in that position. Like you can look at the center back and sure, maybe there's not, not stars there, but nobody played well. And the star players didn't show up as they do sometimes with Canada. But overall, I think it was just a, a greater team issue that the team just had a poor match. And not to beat a dead horse, they do need more matches together in those environments. Right. And I think that's what's going to be so important about those September and October windows, because if you happen to get those elite opponents, that's two more games to prepare for what's going to be a massive Copa America next summer. And you can give the team more reps because five games of a sample size against tier one teams, if you want to throw a tier two team in Japan in there, you're not talking about six games and a 540 minute sample size, which means you can start to glean certain things. Once you start to get game seven, game eight, game nine, by that point, you pretty much got a great idea, especially because in that window, you can maybe only play one game, but just have a longer camp together, therefore more time to train together. You can then get a really good idea of, okay, this is what we're like in these games. We have a big enough sample size to to, to see. We've had different uh, schedules before each of these games, and here's what we've been able to produce. So if those problems persist, in September and October, if they happen to get those games. And as well as in November, because let's not forget, they're gonna be playing a pivotal quarterfinal in the Nations League where qualification for Cold America is on the line. Then there's gonna be a lot more questions to ask than there are now, that's for sure. Look, I think one thing that is starting to become clear, and I think a, a question could be posed is, has Canada reached its limits with tactical flexibility? It's a, it's a bit of a big question, but it's like, look, during World Cup qualifying, tactical flexibility was great. You could catch teams by surprise. One game you're playing a 3-5-2, one game you're playing a 4-3-3, next game you're playing a 1-1-1. Like, you know, like that, that sort of flexibility and predictability helps, uh, you, know, to, you know, especially when teams don't really know what you're about. You're hard to, to plan. You're limiting opponents' weaknesses, but it's, it's something where it's like at the top end of international soccer it becomes so much more of a strength-based game it's right it's that that can you maximize the the strengths and it just feels like all the tactical flexibility it feels like it's been hurting the star players a little right like it feels like yeah for example we talked about just talked about jonathan david and we can use this for alfonso davies alfonso davies in that left role on that left side role has his role been clear for canada no right we that's why we sit here discussing is he a left back is he a left winger is he a striker is he a midfielder and and it feels like there's a lack of clarity because what was it before the world cup heard him mention it was more of a forward now it feels like he's more of a wing back and all of a sudden we see him playing left back it feels like that sort of tactical flexibility it started to reach its limit with with, for for canada i think that's something where it shows in big games because look when you're going up against bigger teams, they're going to hone in on your weaknesses. They're going to try to beat them down. 
and limit your strengths. Well, what that means is you have to be very clear on your identity and you have to maximize your best players. And, and it feels like maybe Canada hasn't done enough to, to, to maximize some of those best players. And namely, you know, someone like Davies is probably the best example of it and all the discourse and the disconnect between his role at Bayern and his role with, with Canada. So 100% um, tactically, I think these big games have shown that, you know, maybe it's time for Canada to look at a system that's a little more clear and identifiable and to build off that and to, so that at least you know, okay, this is the role that Davies is going to play. This is the role that David's going to play. Cause it feels like there still is a bit of fluidity. And then from there, adjust, uh, you know, as well, you have to throw a stack, you know, and Coney in that mix. And then you adjust, okay, what are pieces that help complement those players reach the best versions of themselves in that system where it just feels now the flexibility it was really great in World Cup qualifying, especially to build up the depth. Like it was great that Canada could be flexible so that one day on two days rest, they could switch their lineup and bring in four guys off the bench and those guys would step in and hit another level. But look, I think a clear thing that's been shown at this next level is that your big players need to win games. And for Canada, they haven't won any of those tier one games we mentioned. Players eight to 15 on a roster will help you not lose, but they're maybe not going to be rarely be the difference between you winning and losing, whereas you're going to need your Davieses, you're going to need your Davids. Those are going to be the guys that are going to win you those sort of big games. And it feels like the tactically flexible system hasn't allowed them to do that. And it is something where maybe a bit more of a coherent identity long-term to build on for 2026. Like if it means that tomorrow you decide you're a 4-3-3 team, Davies is a left winger, David leads the line on his own, Laren's a super sub, Ustak and Kone are two eights. Mm-hmm. Then you commit to that. And you do everything in your power to build around that. Is that even if it means you try all sorts of experimental options at the six, all sorts of experimental options? Okay, but at least you're committing to more of that identity that gets more out of a Davies, that gets more out of a David. Whereas just now it feels like game to game, there's too much switching. And for a star player, that can be hard, especially at like at Bayern. We always talk about Davies' success at Bayern. It's because he has a very clear defined role. He's your left back. He will progress from deep. He runs up the line. He defends, whereas for Canada, there's just too much fluidity. And sometimes as a player, especially best players, sometimes you, you keep it simple and you and that's where they excel, right? That's why they're great players. Great players aren't great because they do a thousand things great. They're great because they have, you know, a couple of things that they do well and they maximize that. And Canada needs to, to find a way to do that with Davies, David, Ustachio, uh, Kone, and... I think that will be the big difference because those are going to be the guys that are going to be winning you games, right? Like a lot of the other guys, they'll help, but those are going to be the guys that are going to be winning you these tier one games. And they're going to be the guys who win you finals, et cetera, et cetera. And from Michael Maz, diving into that a little bit more, how can Canada improve their overall defensive structure? There were stretches in the game where they got picked apart like they did against Croatia. Yeah, it just felt like they were just sloppy on the turn. Um, they were disorganized. It kind of felt like they lacked a bit of a leader back there in, in Stephen Vittoria. Yeah, I feel like it's going to be something where it's as much tactics, it's as much profile long-term, right? It's okay. If Vittoria is your leader, okay. At least with Vittoria, we know what he is at this stage of his career. We know that when he plays, Canada does sit a little deeper, but you know what he brings. You know that leadership um, that he brings, and I think... Uh, what's going to be clear is that if you want to play that that next level and be more of a front foot team, you're going to have to play a bit more aggressively defensively. And I think what we've seen is any time that Canada tries to play more aggressively defensively, 
A, they either can't because guys like Vittoria and Borian in goal as well as something you can look in this aren't as suited to play more aggressively. And I think we saw yesterday with the Borian, for example, struggling a bit. Or on the flip side of it, some of these other younger players, you know, they still need a leader to step up in that that three. And that was a huge issue where, look, Johnston Miller and Kennedy was a very flexible back three. You can play a high line. But as you saw, they were just a bit disorganized and they're stepping at the wrong moments. And that's where ideally you would have liked someone to, to, to just, you know, be that, that sort of leader back there. So it is a bit of just a mix of profiles and figuring out which profiles fit what, and then from there adjusting tactically to, to, to find systems that best suit them. Because the reason why Canada was so defensively solid throughout qualifiers is because they realized what Steve Vittoria and Daniel Henry's strengths and weaknesses were, and they built around that. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, if they're going to transition away from Henry and Vittoria, they're going to have to find what Cornelius... What Kennedy, Miller, Johnson, Bombito, McGraw, take your pick, Hebert, McNaughton, if you throw them in that mix, their strengths and weaknesses and adjust to that. And it felt like yesterday we learned what some of those weaknesses were, and now you're going to have to adjust to that. Peter is still alive and on this podcast. He is can confirm. The, he is going to the Canadian men's national team as a performance analyst for the Gold Cup, so can't provide too much input, but you do have an impassioned. AGR, as he likes to say, scratching the chair. Never seen him like this, to be fair. I quite like it. Well, I mean, he's unhinged. He gets fired up when he's playing FIFA and NHL, um, but he's absolutely fired up talking about Canada's loss to the U.S. last night. You also see him playing pool. The guy's a lethal pool player as well. You just gotta gotta poke the bear. And uh, Apparently yesterday's game poked the bear. Anyways, getting back to your questions from Jacob Box, how concerning is it that Davies is still being moved to different positions? Yeah, I think it is a big concern because we talked about it post-World Cup that there needs to be clarity in Davies' role. It's okay. It's stomach it up if it's left back in a 4-3-3 or in a back four. Is it wing back? And it felt like we'd seen a bit of it settle, right? At the, the last camp, he was playing wing back, looked great. Uh, he was playing wing back at Bayern. There's the overlap. It's perfect. So... For there to be so much fluidity. Then Julian Nagelsmann got fired. Yeah. Literally right as that window happened. Like that, that fluidity in this final, yeah, it, it is a bit concerning. Like, again, like you mentioned with your stars, I think you want to make it as simple for them in the, in the roles that look like, again, for Canada, they're going to win their games based on how good Alfonso Davies is, how good Jonathan David, David is, especially at this top level. Like, yeah... You know, you, you can look at it, games like saying the qualifiers where Alfonso Davies was missing for six of them and they managed to still qualify for a World Cup without much sweat. Okay, that's different. That's in CONCACAF. That's where, like we mentioned, Canada can still be without a Davies and still have a qualitative advantage squad-wise or at least be close with a lot of those teams. Whereas, look, right, like when you're going up against world-class teams and maybe it's early to call the U.S. a world-class team yet, although they certainly have world-class potential – What's going to be the difference is that Canada has a world-class player in an Alfonso Davies, right? That's the guy they're going to need to step up in those world-class games. When you're at the World Cup, that's the player you're going to need to, to step up. And I think some clarity in his role will only go, you know, will go a long way uh, because I think as well the team will go from that because, yeah, maybe Davies isn't a leader in the sense that he won't be wearing an armband yet and he isn't, you know, out there leading the speeches, but he's still a you know, very much a leader in the sense that he's the best player. And it's kind of as Davies goes, when he's had his best games, Canada's been flying, right? Like 
And we've seen it. Like, think of the win against Panama in 2021, where he just took the team on his shoulders for that game and just completely went off. And Canada was was flying. He has that ability. But for him to do that on a consistent basis, especially against these top teams, who are the thing is with these, these, when you're playing like a Honduras or a Panama, Davies can, can take over a game. Like, he's, he's that good. Whereas, like, if he's, there's a mismatch, he can take over a game. But when he's going up against top teams at the World Cup, they know what Davies can do. There's more of an even, right? A guy like Joe Scali, who he's going up against, this isn't some dude playing in MLS who's just, you know, crapping his pants, thinking of the thought of playing Davies. Like, this is a guy who's 20, who's played Davies this year, who has done well, because Manchin Gladbach always does well against Bayern. He's, he was probably thinking, like, okay, I, I've got confidence in this matchup, and there, all of a sudden, when Davies does start to do too much, and then he has a bit of incl- lack of clarity about his position, it will catch up to him. So, I think 100%, especially in these bigger games, like, you can get away with playing Davies in more of a free role against, you know, lesser teams. When you're playing these big teams, players like him, David, Ustakio, et cetera, Kona, your big five are going to be what wins you games, and I think the way to get the most out of your big five is a clarity in, in how they're playing. And uh, again, I think for, for Bayern, you, you, what, what makes him so well, well, you have to find a way to replicate that. And I think part of the reason why we see hero ball and, you know, dribbling and all these things that the, this, the discourse we hear about Davies is also, that can just sometimes be what happens when you don't really have that sort of tactical clarity, right? Like Davies naturally He's a flair player. He's a player that at the Whitecaps, when he burst onto the scene, he was ripping out back heels and, you know, pullbacks, and he's always been an exorbitant dribbler, and that's part of the reason that makes him so good um, as a player, but also sometimes when you're playing out wide and you're playing top-class fullbacks, like, a, you know, or guys who are playing top five leagues like Joe Scali, you're not going to be beating them with back heels and roulette spins and, and, and Ronaldo chops. Yeah, maybe once or twice he'll catch them with that move. But ultimately, you're going to beat them Why? what Davies has gotten so good at at the club level. That's running to the touchline. That's bursting past defenders. That's making those sorts of simpler movements. And I do think a more clear role will help him also just settle in and think about that. Whereas when he's in a bit of a free role, it can almost, that, that forward instinct can, can take over. And, uh, you know, you'd almost understand it because at the end of the day, he is someone who grew up playing as a forward. You have to remember he's not necessarily naturally a defender. And part of the reason why he's been so good as a defender at Bayern is because his role's been so laid out clearly from this is your job and do that. And for Canada, uh, they're going to need to find a way to do that. And a lot of the discourse following the match as well was about John Herdman. It seemed like a lot of his comments throughout the pre-match and this entire window were falling differently with the Canadian soccer fan this time around. A lot of his brashness in the past has been lauded on by Canadian soccer fans. uh, And I think our listeners can probably attest to that. But this week, he seemed to be getting a lot of judgment for a lot of what he was saying, especially after the match against the U.S. But getting into some of your questions as well from Dan Clark, was this Herdman's worst tactical match with the CanMNT? I'd probably have to say so, because I think really this, if we're being blunt looking at it from an overall perspective, that was probably the worst CanMNT performance we've seen in a good five years. Because again, you can look back at different games where they've played, where they didn't play well, say the 2019 U.S. game. At that point, they were a younger team. They were naive. They made some poor tactical decisions. They were, what, 3-0 down by half. That game was lost by half, right? It was one of those where, and they were they were young in their cycle. Like, you're allowed a game or two of that when you're, when you're a new team who's still year one, year two under a coach. 
Heck, the Haiti game, like we mentioned, that's individual errors. That's just a second-half capitulation that all came up upon them. So, yeah, I think this was, you know, one of those where this was Canada's worst game. Tactically, it was their worst game in terms of matching an opponent's effort level and worst game in terms of adjustments. Uh, you know, in a certain regard, a lot of that does come down to how Hardman prepared the team. Okay, the preparation was it right. Okay, how does he adjust? And it felt like a lot of the adjustments were too little too late. Again, a lack of halftime subs when your team is clearly struggling is is a moment where you could have hit the reset button on the game. You could have, you know, gotten a bit of life. You could have accepted, be like, yeah, look, okay, maybe it would would have, would it have been unfair to sub out a guy like Scott Kennedy? Yeah, okay, he was struggling. It was also on the overall back three. But by subbing in a guy like Steve Vittoria, it shows, okay, that team performance wasn't good enough. Scott's the guy who suffers this is kind of a wake-up call to everyone on the field. And the fact that there wasn't a moment like that kind of, you know, that, that's an that's an area where, as a coach, you can influence the game. So I do think there were a few moments where Herdman let himself down in that regard, and that is surprising because throughout World Cup qualifying, this isn't to say that Canada started every game perfectly. No, they had some rough first halves. They had some rough moments. But Herdman always along the way did a good job adjusting, or in other games he got that game plan right from, from the get-go. And I feel like this was the first time in a while or maybe even the first time under Herman where they got it wrong from the start and then they didn't do the proper adjustments to at least grab a foothold on the game uh, by the right moment. And from Vladdy McDougie, the team needs upgrades at back and in goal and someone needs to ask Herdman what the hell he was thinking and good enough to coach the Canadian men's national team anymore. Look, I think there's questions now to be had about what is the team's best setup. And again, that goes back to some of those points I've been saying about, okay, how do you maximize the best players? And, you know, where I think there's something uh, to be said in the sense for Milan Boyan. Again, he's the perfect example of it because uh, what I'll say about Milan Boyan, he's a good goalkeeper. I, I think it's important not to lose that in all this. Like this guy carried Canada to a World Cup with some of his goalkeeping performances. Like, yeah, it feels like a bit of an exaggeration to say, but genuinely with his post-shot saved expected goals and all that, like, he genuinely was a big reason why Canada finished first and didn't finish fifth in World Cup qualifying and missed out altogether. But, as we know, Milan Borian's got weaknesses, right? He's got, he's someone who loves staying on his line. He loves, he's not the most apt with his feet. And I think it shows that if you want to get the most out of guys like Davies and David, okay, you're probably playing in a bit more of a fluid system that's a little more, you know, ball intensive. You want your goalkeeper a bit more aggressive so you can play uh, higher up and use that speed and, and et cetera. And can Borean play in that system? You know, probably not. And certainly a guy like Dane Sinclair or Tom McGill or Jonathan Sirwak could be a bit more suited to, to that sort of system long term. So I think the nuance in a question and asking are upgrades in goal or center back or other positions needed? Yeah, but I think it's maybe not – it's not because a guy like Boyan um, is a bad goalkeeper. I think that if you want to take that next step tactically, uh, it feels like someone like a St. Clair, for example, has more of that ceiling to take that next step. And to Herdman, the point on Herdman, I think, you know, he's now learned that, right? He's seen that, okay, there's some of these players that he has to play the sort of demands of these top-level games might not be best suited to that. Now, as a coach, he must adjust. And that's right, say – Herdman would still get leeway because, look, he's learned these lessons now. The big thing is, can he adjust? And if he can't adjust, then we can sit here after these games and be like, okay, 
maybe Herdman, you know, maybe it is something for time for a fresh voice or maybe someone who's had a chance to, to, uh, to come in with a different perspective or something like that. But, you know, now that will be Herdman's big challenge. That was Herdman's big challenge in 2019, right? Was, okay, this Canadian team had some glaring weaknesses defensively. Can you limit that enough to allow your other players to do well? And turns out over qualifying, they did that. Herdman did a great job of elevating the overall squad, finding a defensive formula that worked, and they got the job done. Well, now if you want to take that next step to being a top-tier team, and a team that wins trophies in CONCACAF and pushes out World Cups, okay, they're going to have to find ways to elevate themselves tactically. They're going to have to look at certain individuals that maybe might not, like a guy like Sinclair, someone like Herdman, or even, you know, qualitatively, might Sinclair be better than Her- than Boyan? You can make the argument that Boyan's better based on the Champions League, based on all that. Okay, great. But if St. Clair is the better profile right now and has the potential to be better, you have to be looking at someone like that. And I think there's examples all over the field, like center back, for example. Moise Bambino is a great example. He's young. Uh, you know, he's someone who's very, you know, moldable, hasn't really hit his full potential. If he long term can be a profile that helps your team, even if he's maybe not the better center back now, okay, it's something where you might have to take those lumps and, and have him learn a bit just with the, the payoff long term. And, you know, that's the sort of balance that Herdman's going to have to face now where loyalty and the brotherhood got them to a World Cup. But if they're going to want to take that next step, teams are ruthless. Like, you know, teams are, are not afraid to, to make some of those tough decisions tactically with veterans to take that next step. And, and now Herdman, if he's going to be able to do that, he'll be able to take that next step. If not, that might be where Canada hits a bit of a limit. And from Oz Sweeney, Herdman continues to fall short at the important times, despite his comments from the team they were miles off today outside of winning the gold cup do you see him sticking around for copa let alone the world cup man management only gets you so far i'm not sure the situation gets any better with a new person considering what the upgrades could be or not even upgrades what the replacements could be with the budget that canada soccer has um i don't think you can necessarily take that next step with somebody of a higher quality the question is whether you can get someone of lesser quality who could get more out of the group just because it's a new voice. Yeah, that's a key point. It's like, it's always an important question to also ask when you want to fire coaches, like, what are the replacements? And I think it's something where, you know, with a lot of the constraints, um, you know, especially financially, you ask, okay, who can that next voice be? And the answer might be that the grass isn't always greener. And I think, again, this is a key period for, for Herdman in that there's still a lot of time till that next World Cup, but there's also not a lot of time And that, okay, this next year is critical. In the next 13, 14 months, you're going to play hopefully some Tier 1 friendlies. You're going to play, you know, Copa America qualifiers. You're going to hopefully play at a Copa America. By then, you'll have had even more sample size to prove that you've learned from a lot of these things we spoke of today that's let them down against Tier 1 teams. And there... If they, they're still struggling in that regard, okay, then you, you, you can really look. Because, again, one thing we've said with Herman, and I'll always give him credit for, is how he's adjusted. Because things were looking dire in 2019. Remember the discourse in 2019 after the Haiti loss and Canada threw away their chance to make the Nations League finals in the last game? It felt like the sky was falling down. Like, can Canada make a 2022 cycle? Is Herdman the right you know person for the job? And what did he do? He went out, he learned. He adjusted and he didn't make those same mistakes twice. And 
now that he's you know had the chance to learn and make some mistakes and get those errors, what's going to be crucial is how we adjust. And I think now this next timeline of a year is critical because I think if there, if there's you know a real wall that's being hit, and that there is even if there's a bit of a setback, a regression, then by the end of next year's Copa America. There you have exactly two years to a World Cup. There you can make a change and have tangible time for it all to come together by the time 2026 is around and to build. Uh, you know, it is enough time to, to do that. And I think that will be the real key catalyst point where you're going to have to evaluate where you're at. Whereas now I think it is still early. He'll have the chance to, to learn from those errors and, um, you know, learn what he, he now knows about playing these top level teams and taking that next step. And, That'll be the difference. Can he do that? Can he find a way to get the most? And um, ultimately, I guess that's a question that I'd love to sit back and answer uh, when that time comes around. Because I think for me, that will be the the big determining factor, uh, especially as well. We talk about a lack of preparation. Okay, say that preparation gets sorts out now over the next few months, you get more of these longer camps that Herman wants and you get more of a chance to evaluate the pool. Okay, if you get those opportunities and things then regress or stay the same, then you're wondering, okay, at that point, um, you know, you, you got to do make do with what you got. And um, then you can also look at a potential fresh face or a refresh. So, yeah, I'd say this next year is critical. It is very critical if you're looking at those sorts of, um, you know, coaching discussions. Because if you can prove it, then uh, it's something where for 2026, you, you're fine and you, you, you can look elsewhere after but for now i think this next year is critical for herdman and from spiro vondis as well as parody Derek simon love herdman but has he taken us as far as he can they looked unprepared and even in the semi lacked the sharpness individually and collectively no i'd say he, he hasn't yet or at least it feels like he hasn't and i think now why well, the, the the next year is the big test but because these lessons have been learned and it feels like, especially now that this kind of point represents the end of the European season, a bunch of players are going to get transfers, they're going to take that next step. Now it's going to be up to, to Herdman to, to respond as Canada you know, continues to grow and hopefully more players make those jumps to Tier 1 leagues like he mentions and hopefully you get more preparation time. You're about to have a Gold Cup, which, as we'll look at, is a pretty strong roster. So this is a chance to build on a bit of things we mentioned like that are missing tactically, like, okay, like you, we're talking about goalkeeping, center backs and midfielders. This is your chance to just to, to find and test out some of those players who could be those next key options for you, the same way that you found out that Tejan Buchanan can be a huge asset for you at the last Gold Cup or how important Stefan Eustachio can be to your team, et cetera, et cetera. You have a Gold Cup to find those moments. So again, I think it's something where it, it you know, it's, it would feel unfair to say that Herbin's taken us as far as we, Canada can go yet. Um, but I think, again, these next few windows are crucial because these are the things that Canada sorely lacked over the last few years. Like, for example, friendlies, as invaluable as they might feel emotionally, and like, don't get me wrong, I would rather play a Nations League final 15 times out of 10 over some meaningless friendly. But friendlies are useful to experiment, to tack, to do stuff tactically. You get on the, you know, not unlimited subs, but usually get what six subs, and you can agree on more based on it. That helps you a lot in terms of okay, being able to tweak formations. You can bring in players who, for example, are dual nationals, and you know you want to look at, and but you don't know much about, and it turns out they're they're a perfect fit. Well, you can find that out versus friendlies, where in competitive games it's must win. There's you know imp- implications such as playing players will cap tie them 
Um, so I think these these next windows will be key because a it gives you a gold cup where you can finally take a time a bit back to sit back and not be playing must win games like they have been nonstop since the last gold cup and you know evaluate some talent and then those friendlies in the fall are also going to be crucial because they'll allow you to finally experiment to look at some new faces to hopefully play some top level teams and there again if if Canada's stagnating despite having all those opportunities to look at new players and to take that next step then you can maybe start to say Herdman's taking Canada as far as he can but I think until though that opportunity happens I don't think it's fully fair to say yet and getting into his comments post game those of John Herdman Canada soccer has, it's not been a secret, had troubles financially over the last little while since signing that deal with the Canadian soccer business. And that's really the gist of the question from Javier Grinniest, Oz Sweeney, and Ryan Burns. And from Javier Grinniest, when is Canada soccer going to step up and run itself as a professional organization? The women have already stated that their success happened in spite of Canada soccer, and the men have a manager who regularly makes juvenile mistakes. Can we not expect more? And from Oz Sweeney, the lack of prep clearly played a part in this tournament. Do you think that the CSA learns from that mistakes and tries to help the women more ahead of the World Cup? GE can't be the only sponsor happy to throw money towards the women's program. I mean, Canada Soccer does have other sponsors. Uh, they do get match day revenue. Um, GE is is sending money towards the, the women's program, and I think that we could, in the future, see potential support towards the men's program individually as well, just to sort of circumnavigate that CSB deal in terms of companies giving sponsorship. It does mean a little bit more effort from the companies themselves rather than just signing a check and sending it off to Canada Soccer slash CSB. Um, as for the the World Cup this summer, the preparation, I mean, it, it's within weeks now. So the preparation is what it is at this point. It's unfortunate that the preparation is what it is at this point, but it is better than say the, the men had for nations league with, with four days prep. But then again, you go back to, they hired Richard Shaw and Phil Neville and that money's clearly somewhere. Could that not have paid for a couple more days of preparation? And would that have made more of a difference? Because I think Canada could probably have gotten Panama past Panama without them. So, I mean, there's so much that you can unpack with Canada soccer financially. Um, At the end of the day, the CSB deal is hamstringing the organization, hamstringing the game in this country at the national level stage and I mean also probably at the the youth level and such um, while helping the the professional level there's so much you could dive into Um, Canada needs to develop more bring in more money to CSB CSA uh, just overall there there needs to be more money and that is what's going to bring Canada's growth as a, a soccer nation on the world stage the fact that the women are preparing for a World Cup under these conditions is quite frankly inexcusable. Like that alone is deplorable and speaks to the issues that are still plaguing the Federation. And it's one thing that I think in the back of our minds we were worried about with both the women's and the men's simultaneous success was, okay, can they build on this? Is there going to be some sort of windfall from this? Are, are we going to learn from from these opportunities and so far you can say no they've been hamstrung and now both teams are suffering they both had budget cuts they're both not getting exactly what they probably should be getting if the panamanian national team gets 10 days in a friendly to prepare for nations league semifinals, and canada gets three training sessions in the lead up to that that's a problem very clearly if the women's team 
can't get any home friendly setup before they leave for the World Cup or even get adequate enough preparation leading into a tournament on the other side of the world where they're going to have to adjust time zone wise and it's going to take a while because newsflash going to Australia is a pretty big freaking adjustment for the body. Um, then we've got a problem here, simply put. And that's why you can still look at John's comments and say he does have a point here. Is it going to be something fans want to hear constantly? No, they're going to get tired of it, of course. But the point still stands regardless. And until he gets what he wants, he's going to keep asking for it. Same with Bev Priestman. Same with anybody on either side of the ledger when it comes to the men or the women's team. Yeah, look, we've had all this great tactical discussion, all this great, you know, discussion on the field. Well, you ha you've had, yeah, which I'm sure you've enjoyed greatly. Talking to myself uh, and Ben and the listener. Great to be uh, talking. But <laughs> certainly we've had a lot of great discussions about all the, the tactics and all that. And I think it's important, though, to remember in context that we're lucky that we're sitting here being able to have these discussions uh, as the Women's World Cup prep ramps up that we're going to have be able to have the same discussions about um, – you know, this women's team and the fact that both of these teams have created such a high ceiling for themselves despite everything that's happened because, yeah, look, I think it's important to not lose the sight in all this that, you know, these are, these organizational issues will hurt and could eventually lower the team's ceiling, right? Like, it's something where ultimately if you're constantly hamstringing preparation, you're hamstringing your ability to get the most, it's going to hurt your, your, your ceiling as a, as a you know, national team, especially the lack of youth camps, et cetera. And that's where it's something, it's important to not lose sight of all of that, I'd say, I guess. And, you know, say Herdman's comments and what he's pushing for, because what, you know, does it ring a bit hollow, say, if that's the right way to put it, after final, yeah, because after final, like it's a final, it's something where preparation goes out the window. It's, you know, 22 players on the, pitch the two managers etc like it's something where preparation feels a little less like is relevant in that moment say but it does absolutely it's important long term if you want to get the ceiling hit the ceiling of this team long term i mean peter made a good point in terms of timing right the american media focus on canada because it is a final this is a chance for herman to really make that plea go to wider ears and I, I get that and, and you know that's why it's the American like, media also picked up the all those quotes and ran with them like immediately oh, that yeah. was one of like that almost if the U.S. hadn't won the Nations League that would have been the lead story even for the American media there like they were all over it and there was a lot of engagement from that too yeah so that's a so are the is the timing of the comments you know, frustrating to hear from a fan perspective, absolutely. Because, yeah, you, you lost a final, you got, you know, outplayed. You're not going to want to hear your coach, you know, talking about that. But it is something long-term that, you know, it, it, you know the Federation is going to have to find a way to, to settle all this because the last thing you want to do is hurt the ceiling of these players. And when you look back in five, ten years, you don't want it to look back and be like, oh, if Can you don't want Canada to go back in the dark days or you don't want to look back and be like, what if Canada was able to prepare as a team that they had the potential to be? Uh, and, and that's uh, that's important to look at long term. The summer's not over for the Canadian men's national team. However, the Gold Cup is coming up. That's starting on June 27 against a team yet to qualify in Toronto at BMO Field. Hope to see a lot of you there for that one. But Canada released their Gold Cup roster today. A few more 
veterans than initially expected. Milan Borjan and Stefan Stakio cracking the squad after expectations were that they would be among the key players skipping the tournament. But initial reactions to the Gold Cup roster. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to, to see. I think overall it's a strong squad. It's almost a bit stronger than I even expected. Huge that Stefan Ustakio is there. You obviously want as many leaders, especially a guy like Ustakio, who's going to be a long-term piece, right? Like it's someone where, you know, it's someone who's a key leader now and for the future. So good to see him there. Um, I am a bit surprised at how veteran heavy it is, um, but I suppose that's never, you know, you, you can never have too much veteran leadership. Like I was surprised to see Borjan, Vittoria, um, Hoyland, and Cavallini. I would have thought maybe of those four, maybe two, right? Or, or Wother, uh, David Weatherspoon as well. That makes maybe those five I would expect the two. Um, but obviously that leadership helps. But as long as this, I just want to see this tournament used as a, a chance to be a bit more, again, experimental to help find some of those flaws that have maybe, maybe been addressed. Like we mentioned, like there's a key need for center backs of a certain profile, goalkeeper of a certain profile, midfielders of certain profiles, heck, even some different profiles of attacker. Because it never hurts that, say, in a game where a David or Laren is struggling to have a guy you can turn to off the bench, uh, you know, the same way that U.S. was able to use Ricardo Pepe off the bench against Mexico when Balogun wasn't able to get a goal and Pepe ends up scoring a huge goal. Canada, it wouldn't be hurt to have that. So it's a question is how much of those young guys will we see in those roles? Like, uh, and that's what I hope we see. Like, I, if, if, I hope we get to see a Bombito or a McGraw in these opportunities while also learning from a Victoria. Like hopefully we see a St. Clair, but Borean's also there to mentor and push him. So I think that's going to be key. Cause again, we, we know what Borean is. We know what Victoria is at this stage of their career and they're good players, you know, but they're also players that we know what they are. Right? There's these players with potential. There's so much growth. They could be huge for the national team long-term. And I just hope Canada strikes a right balance between that, but also winning. Cause yeah, winning would be huge. We know that winning a trophy uh, would be immense, but ho hopefully there's a way to balance that goal to win where you're not just going full veteran heavy every week. So I think in terms of what you need long-term, I don't know if that would be fully beneficial uh, for the team. Cause there is a key need to, to integrate some of these young guys. Cause if not now, when, when else? Cause uh, you know, with friendlies coming up, obviously there's an opportunity there, but it's going to be harder to throw a kid in against the Wolves for his first game if it's against a Germany, for example, just throwing a completely random team out there versus at the Gold Cup, where it is help a little easier where you're playing like Guyana or, you know, Granada in your first game or, uh, you know, it makes it a little easier to throw in a, a player like that in there. Yeah, I mean, when you look at some of the opponents at the, the Gold Cup, it is the perfect opportunity to be giving some of these young players a chance at the national team, a chance in the national team shirt, because as you said, the, the friendlies they're for experimenting, but they're not necessarily for like introducing a ton of new young players to get a look. You could probably do that at the gold cup and still get results if you don't do too, too much of it. But even if you, I think went with an entirely young and inexperienced squad, you might still be able to get a win at the gold cup, just on the quality of the Canadian player pool at this point, at least in the group stage. But a question from Dan Clark, and I'll throw another one in there as well. Is it time to move on from Borean? And as well, with a guy like Alistair Johnston missing this tournament, what does the back line necessarily look like? What are the opportunities for McGraw and Bombito? In terms of Borean, I, I think this tournament has to be St. Clair's tournament. Because at this point, when else, like he's like he can't say if lack of familiarity, because he's been pretty much like every squad except that like couple squads we lost his Minnesota spot, but 
pretty much almost every squad since 2021. So he knows this group very well. He knows the system. He's had a chance to work with Borean. And so I hope they hope we see St. Clair. Because, again, I just feel like he has a bit of a profile that um, could be a wild card for, for Canada. It can help them. Like, he's, he, he can play aggressively off his line. He can sweep. He can, you know, he's good with his feet. And I think all those things will help Canada tactically, uh, especially in terms of helping some of their, their best players. Um, so for that, that's what I'd say. And then defensively, in terms of that back three, um, I think McGraw's a big one because his size and his aerial presence could be a very potential intriguing option as a Vittoria replacement. Uh, Bombito is another interesting one because he's been very good in the air and on the ball since his college um, days. And given his potential, I'd love to see what he can do in a national team environment. Uh, so hopefully we see some reps for them and maybe in the middle of the back three. Uh, and then from there, um, I guess just, you know, more and more of Kennedy and Miller on the outside. We'll probably see a lot of, and hopefully we see some Dominic Zator as an outside right center back. I feel like uh, someone where if he can potentially step up and show that he can spell Alistair Johnson in certain moments, it would help him in games like yesterday where Johnson was clearly injured and tired. Uh, you know, felt like a guy like Zator would have been key to have to step up and hopefully in the gold cup, you can see that. So at some point, honestly, I'd love to see a back three of, you know, McGraw or Bombito paired with the Zator and uh, Miller or Kennedy on the left. I feel like that'd be fun to see. Or a back four. See what Bombito and McGraw can do together. What Kennedy and mm-hmm. B- B- Bombito, what, you know, Mc- take your pick, basically. McGraw and Miller, like, screw it. Throw the experiment. Try it. These are, the, these are where you're going to learn about yourself tactically because I think it's huge if you can play a back four long term because can move Davies to left back or, or move him up to wing and have Atticoot be a left back. You can still keep three in the midfield. Uh, I think a back four long term could also be very beneficial. So if you can experiment and find combos that work, go for it. But looking at the future of Canadian soccer and the Canadian men's national team, from Senza Gluten, with Luciano Acosta potentially getting U.S. citizenship and further improving the U.S. talent pool, are there players currently on one of the Canadian MLS teams who could take a similar path for Canada? Someone like, say, Ryan Gault, who has been asked about it by Alex before and he seemed to be somewhat interested in entertaining the idea yeah it would be uh he'd be the leading candidate for sure and he'd still be 30 right around there by the time he's eligible so he'd have a couple years at the at least in, in his prime to be able to contribute if he still wanted to yeah and like it's a profile that you need I mean of course there's still lots that happen between the next few years and yeah, I think, uh, you know, in terms of the naturalization, what's, for, you know, unfortunate, there's a f- some interesting guys from the 2017, 2018 times who uh, could supposedly be eligible soon. Actually, yeah, no, he wouldn't be eligible. But, like, for example, imagine if a guy like Eric Kadoy was fit and stuck around a bit longer. We yeah. always talk about center backs for, for Canada. But it just feels like so many of these guys, right when they're about to enter that third, fourth, fifth year, they get chipped yeah. out and really the, what the only guy who's made it five years on any of the Canadian teams is Rudy Camacho and yep. like, you know, solid guy. But I think at this age, like that ship is, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. if he was a few years younger, then maybe potentially he's like a stopgap solution, but not now. It's like the only one really, I was going to say the only one who felt close was a guy like Veselinovic, but because he's gotten his call-ups for Serbia. He's yeah. That's out the window that. now. He but but Gershon, Gershon Kofi had that, that, talk about getting Canadian citizenship and entering the men's national team fold back when he was with the Whitecaps. That's pretty John Herman era though, I'd, I'd say, because we're talking, if you're talking like oh, guys who could have popped up in the Herman era, 
There hasn't been many of them because they always move up after their third or fourth season with the Canadian club. Those damn... Or they get called up. Those damn Canadian laws, immigration laws. Imagine if a guy like Pedro Vite stayed, flies under the radar and gets his Canadian citizenship. But yeah. now obviously he gets called up for an official Ecuador camp. Yeah. Um, to be fair though, I mean, he was on the radar for Ecuador oh, yeah. even before he left Ecuador. He so. played at the U20 World Cup, so... Speaking of the U20 World Cup, I was going back through some old photos and I found some photos of Steven Vitoria playing in Canada, but for Portugal at the U20 World Cup. And he looks so much more Portuguese in those photos than he looks with the national team. Now. I don't know what it Beards is. Beards make a difference, man. Beards make a difference. Let me tell you, if you saw me clean shaven now, you, you'd think, oh my God, that is, first of all, you're hideous. Second of all, you are seven years younger than you look now. Like, honestly. I remember I shaved once before Halloween because I was Freddie Mercury for Halloween one year and I shaved my beard and my girlfriend had never seen me without my beard. So I just had the mustache left and the next day I didn't like how the mustache looked. So I just went clean shaven and she woke up and had a fright because she's like, oh my fucking God, who is that? And I'm like, it's me. She's like, never go clean shaven ever again. I'm like, okay, great. Good to know. Point taken. Well, that will be it for episode 127 of the Northern Football Podcast from my two bearded co-hosts, Peter Galindo and Alex Gongi-Bruzik, and my clean-shaven self. That is all we've got for you today. assassin. Babyface assassin. That's all we've got for you today. Peter's off to join the Canadian men's national team, shutting out the rest of Canadian soccer, Canadian soccer media, as he waves goodbye to our call right now. Uh, But... Canada soccer continuing a big summer women's world cup coming up CONCACAF gold cup as well. Certainly a big summer still on the cards, even after the nation's league.